more to say hello to my little friend, the best little podcast in the known universe, covering issues in philosophy, theology, biblical studies, social issues, and whatever else I feel like at the time, I am Glenn Peoples, your host. Well, right now it's the 4th of June, 2011. Winter is descending on the deep south of New Zealand, and this is episode 41. In mid-November, Later this year, the Conference of the Evangelical Philosophical Society is happening in San Francisco, California, and the theme is Moral Philosophy and Moral Epistemology. Well, episode 41 is on moral theory and moral epistemology, but the EPS couldn't fit it in. Either that or one of you, my faithful listeners, has warned them about me. But in any event, it's not going to San Francisco, so it's going out via the podcast. Episode 41 is called The Epistemological Objection to Divine Command Ethics. So here's briefly what I'm going to be talking about. Divine Command Ethics is something that I've been talking about a bit lately. The last two episodes have mentioned it. A couple of episodes ago, I gave an overview of the ethical theory, Divine Command Ethics, and in the last episode, I was talking about divine commands and the social nature of morality. So I won't, you know, re-describe the theory for you, but in brief, the term refers to a cluster of very similar ethical theories, and the one feature that they all have in common is a very close relationship between the will of God and moral obligation. In one version, uh, this is the version held by Robert Adams, the property of being morally right or wrong is identical with the property of being respectively commanded or forbidden by God. Uh, And another version defended by, as I call him, the late great Philip Quinn, the relationship is a causal one where it's God's will that makes actions right or wrong. Now, other variations do exist, but they tend to very closely resemble one or the other of those two. Okay, so one objection to all of this, in fact, not just to divine command ethics, but to theologically grounded ethics in general, has been the claim that if morality had its basis in God, then people who don't believe in God couldn't know right from wrong. But that that can't be right. The objection goes, surely there are plenty of non-believers who do know right from wrong, even if, like religious believers, they do get it wrong sometimes, but they do know it. So it can't be the case, some conclude, that morality has its basis in God, let alone in God's commands or God's will. I refer to this objection as the epistemological objection. Epistemology has to do with the study of knowledge and belief, so how you come to know things or why you believe things. I think that this objection is mistaken. I'm going to look at a couple of crude versions of the objection, um, and then I'm going to show where I think they go wrong, and then I'll turn to a a more recent and more nuanced version of the objection, uh, an objection given by Wes Morriston. Although 
A slight improvement on earlier versions of the same objection, if only because Morriston takes more care when he formulates it, I think that it still fails for basically the same reason. And so I'm going to conclude that a divine command theory of ethics is actually not troubled at all by sceptical concerns over whether or not unbelievers can enjoy, or maybe not enjoy, maybe be burdened with moral knowledge. So that's the game plan. Let's go. As promised, I'm going to start out by just looking at some of what I consider to be the crude versions of the epistemological objection. Richard Taylor presented a version of the epistemological objection in his debate with William Lane Craig, and the debate was on the question of whether or not the basis of morality is natural or supernatural. Here's what Richard Taylor said, and I quote, The basis for morality is conventional, which means the rules of morality were fabricated by human beings over many generations. These rules are to abstain from injury, to abstain from lying, theft, assault, killing, and so forth. These rules were not the invention of God. No one in this room imagines that if there were not a God to tell us these things, we would not know any better. No one in this room thinks that if God had not told us this, if God had not delivered these rules to Moses, then we would not see anything wrong with my stealing, assaulting, and killing. End quote. Now, as a side comment, I think it's pretty obvious that Taylor is begging the question. This debate was about whether or not there could be moral facts without God, and Taylor, in his opening statement, says to what I assume is at least considerably a Christian audience, he says that no one in the room doubts that if there were not a God to tell us these things, they would still be knowable. Well, you know, truths can't be known unless they are truths, and the very question and debate was meant to be on whether or not there could be moral truths without the existence of a God, but look, set that aside. There is an important claim being taken for granted here. Either, Taylor is assuming, either God tells us moral truths by issuing explicit public utterances, whether in person, through Moses, or through someone or something else, or else we would not see anything wrong with doing anything, no matter how terrible it was. I'm pretty confident that's what he means, and I think Taylor affirms later in that same debate that I'm interpreting him correctly, because he says later, and I'll quote again, I profoundly believe that we should be loving, kind, and the other virtues he enumerated. He's referring back to virtues that Bill Craig enumerated. In order to say that, do you need, do I need, to think that God is watching? Does any of us need to think that we are going to be punished if we are not loving and kind? Do we not see something worthwhile in being loving, kind, treating people in certain ways and so forth, which doesn't require us to talk about objective standards, doesn't require us to refer to scripture, refer to any sermon that anyone's heard? We can see this. We can see this because human beings are born with the capacity for this and we're quite capable of seeing it sorry, of seeing its propriety. propriety. No one would suggest that I have no reason for being loving, kind to those who are dear to me and indeed to my enemies. We can see this without God telling us that. We can see this without clergymen telling us this. Now I'm emphasizing the phrase, we can see this, because that's about epistemology, what we're aware of, what we know. So Taylor's position 
is the fact that we can know moral truths, or we can see them, as he puts it, without referring to scripture or being told them by clergymen, establishes that morality is not grounded in God. And so the assumption here is that a supernatural basis for ethics requires that people who don't read the Bible or go to church or receive religious instruction won't have any moral knowledge. They won't see this. Although in principle they might have accidentally true moral beliefs, but that's another matter. Now, almost surprisingly, Taylor is not the only ethicist, or even, not that he's a theologian, but even if he were, he wouldn't be the only theologian to make this argument. The liberal bishop of Edinburgh, Richard Holloway, opened his book about keeping religion out of ethics by posing these questions as though they made religiously grounded ethics look crazy. He said, Do we have to be religious to be moral? Do we have to believe in God to be good? Those are the questions he poses. And the suggestion here is that grounding ethics in God removes the ability to be moral from people who are not religious or who don't believe in God. A philosopher, Richard Gert, is it Richard? I should just check that. Bernard Gert, confusing my people. Bernard Gert makes this argument explicitly. He says, and I quote, It's also a consequence of this view and he's discussing the view that morality requires God, it's also a consequence of this view that atheists cannot consider anything to be a moral rule. Further, not only atheists, but deists, or anyone who does not believe that God gave persons any rules to live by, will also be logically excluded from holding that anything is a moral rule. Also, anyone who doubted that the rule against killing came from God would necessarily have to doubt that it was a moral rule. None of these consequences is true, hence it cannot be a necessary condition for a rule to be a moral rule, that it be a command of God. Now, I hope that you can see that the same kind of epistemological objection is the thread that connects these three lines of argument. Really, I think they're versions of one line of argument. The underlying argument goes like this, where Q stands for the act of knowing moral facts, and C is just anything. Okay, so premise number one. If C is the cause of our ability to Q, then a person, P, cannot Q unless they believe in C. Premise number two. P, that is person P, does in fact Q, but he does not believe in C. Conclusion, therefore, C is not the cause of our ability to cue. Okay, because they're saying, well, if God were the cause of our, of our ability to know moral facts, you know, if God were the cause of there being morally good things for us to do, then we couldn't do morally good things or know moral truth unless we believed in God. And then people are saying, but these people are atheists. They do engage in cue, you know, in morality, and they don't believe in God. Therefore, God does not cause our ability to engage in morality or to be moral. This is wrong in every way. Well, not in every way, but it's, it's wrong in at least one important way. Premise one is false. We can think all, of all kinds of counterexamples that disprove it. For example, certain biological facts about the respiratory system bring it about that a person can breathe. Okay, So that's the cause of our ability to breathe. But it doesn't follow that uh, because some people are scientifically illiterate, they live in the bush, they don't know anything about how 
our respiratory system system works or even that we have such a thing, that doesn't mean they can't breathe. Okay, they just don't know the basis for our ability to breathe. In fact, the scientific implications of what these people are saying is crazy. It leads to the view that we cannot know that any phenomenon at all occurs unless we know what causes it or what makes it possible. This is a very common confusion. This confuses the epistemic autonomy of ethics, that is, the independence of our ability to know ethical facts from the knowledge of theological truths. Those two things are independent. This argument confuses that with ontological autonomy. And that's the claim that the ethical facts themselves are independent of theological truths. But that's quite a different claim. And this is confusing those two claims. Crude versions of the epistemological objection are therefore highly implausible, and they don't warrant, in my view, very much attention. Nonetheless, ethicists and divine command ethicists in particular have been explaining how divine command ethics is compatible with non-believing people having moral knowledge for a number of decades. And I'm going to say more about a couple of examples, uh, Robert Adams and Philip Quinn, shortly. But the crude versions of the argument, I... uh, there are what people call non-starters. They just don't get off the ground. They, they fumble with basic confusion and they fail pretty much immediately. More recently, however, philosopher Wes Morriston has entered the debate, claiming that if divine command ethics were true, unbelievers would not be able to have moral knowledge. So it's our old friend or enemy, the epistemological objection. He says, and I quote, People who do not believe that there is a God constitute an obvious problem for divine command meta-ethics. An obvious problem, not even a subtle problem, but it's just obvious. Morriston decides to focus only on one specific variety of divine command ethics, one in which the property of being morally right or wrong is identical with the property of being commanded or forbidden by a loving God. That's Adams's theory. His main approach is to seize upon a limited sense of the word command, in which divine commands are speech acts to certain persons. Now, there's really nothing new about his objection. It has been posed before, and in my view, it has been answered decades ago, actually. In the early 70s, a philosopher named Eric Darcy presented an objection that I think you'll see is pretty much the same as that of of Morriston. This is what Darcy said. He says, and I quote, If immoral actions are immoral, merely because God so wills it, merely because God legislates against them, it would be sheer coincidence that someone who knew nothing of God or his law happened to adopt the same views about particular actions as God did. Okay, so what he's saying is, those who don't know that God exists or that God issues commands wouldn't have access to the source of moral truth because they don't know that God's there. Morriston's summary of his objection, I think, shows us the very strong similarity between his argument and and the earlier one of Darcy. He says, and I quote, Reasonable non-believers have moral obligations and are often enough aware of having them. Yet it is not easy to think of such persons as hearing divine commands. This makes it hard to see how a divine command theory can offer a completely general account of the nature of moral obligation. All right. At this point, I'm going to distinguish between two ways of thinking about divine command ethics. 
Some proponents of divine command ethics, like the late Philip Quinn, who advocated a causal divine command theory, do not believe that divine commands must be delivered via some sort of speech act in order to bring about the moral rightness and wrongness of certain actions. Although the literature has, by and large, always referred to the view that he and others hold as a divine command theory of ethics, and this is in fact what uh, Philip Quinn called his own view in his book Divine Commands and Moral Requirements, Morriston prefers not to refer to Quinn's position that way, and he instead calls it a divine will theory of ethics, because it's God's will that brings moral effects about and not God's speech acts. Robert Adams, who holds that moral properties are identical with properties about being commanded by God, construes divine commands more narrowly to specify that it's God's will as it has been communicated to those who are expected to obey it. Now, just going to talk briefly about Philip Quinn. He didn't personally hold to Adams's view. Nonetheless, he did defend it, along with his own view, against Darcy's epistemological objection in 1979. Firstly, he pointed out that a more general divine will theory of ethics that says nothing about speech acts actually doesn't even have this problem. He says, and I quote, Our theory asserts that divine commands are conditions causally necessary and sufficient for moral obligations and prohibitions to be enforced. It makes no claims at all about how we might come to know just what God has commanded. For all the theory says, it might be that we can come to know what God has commanded by first coming to know what is obligatory and forbidden. After all, it's a philosophical truism that the causal order and the order of learning need not be the same. Even if effects are sometimes known through their cause, causes are sometimes known from their effects. So it is consistent with our theory to maintain that we can come to know what is obligatory and what, what is forbidden, without prior causal knowledge of why these things have the moral status they do, end quote. Okay? So, for the divine command theorist who is content with a more general thesis about the relationship between God's will and moral facts, Morriston's argument has no importance and can simply be ignored. And I think that Morriston actually admits that. He says, and I quote, a divine command, sorry, a divine will theorist who construes his theory as an account of the identity of the properties in the, in the moral obligation family does not need to deny that one can have justified beliefs about moral right and wrong in a wide range of cases without knowing anything about God. There are, of course, legitimate questions about how we do know what our moral obligations are, and such questions are not immediately answered by a divine will theory. Okay, that's fair enough, that's fine. He comments here on not a causal theory, which is what Quinn held, but rather a thesis about the identity of moral properties. But I think the same defense is available in either case. If God's will makes actions moral or immoral, that likewise leaves open the question of how people can recognize that acts are moral or immoral. So there's no necessary problem at all for a more general divine will theory, as he calls it. Okay, so what about a divine command theory where divine commands are, are construed in terms of speech acts? Well, that wasn't Quinn's theory, but he still defended those people. He defended that theory. He said, uh, and I quote, One reply to this line of argument might be to claim that such things as scripture, tradition, personal revelation, and natural law itself 
are sources of knowledge concerning what God has willed. Right, so if you have a divine command theory of ethics where, where God must have actually communicated something via some kind of speech act, it's still not a problem for unbelievers, says Quinn, who didn't actually hold that view, because well, there are all kinds of things that can count as communication from God or speech acts. So even if you think that divine command ethics must be construed as speech acts, that's fine. Uh, why should we think that, that presents a problem? Because that can be a very broad category of things indeed. The question that one might have naturally is over whether or not any of the wide variety of ways in which God could communicate his will really counts as a command or a speech act. But rather obviously, in my opinion, all that matters is they count as a speech act or a command in as strong a sense as a proponent of divine command ethics thinks that God's will is expressed to us. So it, it would be kind of silly to say to a divine command ethicist, ah, yes, you, the divine command theorists, you do have a defensible theory as long as you hold a very broad view of what can count as a divine command. Sure, given what you actually believe, you have no problem about unbelievers obtaining moral knowledge. But what if your view were different? And what if you held a much narrower conception of what counted as a divine command, so narrow that nobody who disbelieved in God could know what was right and wrong? Well, maybe the answer would be, yeah, that would generate serious problems. But so what? You know, if I don't actually hold that theory, I don't need to address those problems. Robert Adams, who does hold a divine command theory involving speech acts, and not just God's will more generally, admits that the question of exactly what counts as a divine command is, quote, a difficult question. He doesn't claim that it's simple. He cites theologian Richard Mao, who indicates that God's commands could take a whole variety of forms, like scripture, natural law, perhaps even one-off commands that really do come directly from God, uh, could even come from introspection on our moral intuitions. According to Adams, for his divine command theory to have teeth, and I quote, it is important to insist on a range of possibilities, at least as wide as Mao suggests, for the communication or revelation of divine commands, end quote. This is because, in order to avoid just the sort of epistemological objection that Morriston later raised, and I quote, it's important to understand divine commands as cognitively accessible to human beings quite generally, and hence in a wide variety of ways. End quote. In Adams's view, and I quote again, reasoning will play an important part in our access to, to divine commands. End quote. And lastly, in, summary, in summing up what he took a divine speech act to be, Adams reiterates what I think is essentially the same response that Quinn earlier offered when he says, and I quote, In my opinion, a satisfactory account of these matters will have three main points. Number one, a divine command will always involve a sign, as we may call it, that is intentionally caused by God. Number two, in causing the sign, God must intend to issue a command, and what is commanded is what God intends to command thereby. Number three, the sign must be such that the intended audience could understand it as conveying the intended command. End quote. Notice point three. The sign that God gives doesn't have to be such that its intended audience is able to understand that the sign comes from God, or that the command is God's command. 
The only thing the sign needs to be able to do is to get the audience to understand the requirement that is contained in the command. And so this way, the fact that a person doesn't believe in God is no barrier to that person knowing that something is in fact a moral requirement. So let's turn now to Morriston's objection a little more closely. He takes his objection to apply specifically to the version of divine command ethics propounded by Adams that I've just said a few things briefly about. Why then does he take his account of a speech act as a sign to be inadequate? Well, the first specific objection that Morrison raises to Adam's account, as outlined above, has to do with feature three of a divine command. Feature three was that the sign must be such that the intended audience could understand it as conveying the intended command. That's an important feature. Uh, People are, in fact, capable of failing to understand the content of signs through their own fault. Negligence, engaging in poor moral reasoning, entertaining absurd beliefs when they really should know better, and, and so on and so forth. It would not be reasonable to require of properly given signs that everybody, regardless of their culpability, does understand it as conveying a moral requirement. But Morriston takes issue with this. Noting the use of the word could, remember it said... Uh, The sign must be such that the intended audience could understand it as conveying the intended command. Morriston says, But where exactly does this leave a reasonable non-believer? In what sense is he able to understand a sign as conveying a divine command? He puts speech marks around that phrase, as conveying a divine command. He is, after all, a reasonable non-believer. He has done all that he is epistemically required to do with respect to his beliefs about God, And he still doesn't believe that there is any such being. Even if he is aware of a sign that he somehow manages to interpret as a command not to steal, how can he be subject to that command if he doesn't know who issued it, or that it was issued by a competent authority? Now, one rather attractive response that some theists might make is that it is not a settled matter between theists and non-theists, that you can fail to believe in God even though you've done all that you're epistemically required to do. Now, if a theist wants to successfully, well, sorry, if they do successfully argue that point, then this objection would not even get off the ground. In fact, should a theist simply believe that this response would be true, then Morriston's objection will not be persuasive to a theist like this. But more to the point, more to the point here, surely it's irrelevant whether or not the unbeliever in question doesn't know who issued the command. He doesn't need to know that anybody issued it, one would think. Morriston put quote marks around the words conveying a divine command, as though he's quoting from Adams. You know, you have to understand that this is conveying a divine command. That's not a quote. Adams didn't say it. He didn't say that a sign needs to be such that a person can understand that it conveys a divine command. Only that a person could understand it as conveying the intended command. He doesn't even need to know that it is a command, provided the command can be conveyed to him. In slogan form, some people like slogans, I usually don't, but I've come up with a slogan. People need knowledge, or at least potential knowledge, of the command, not knowledge about the command. Remember that it's the command itself that is conveyed in Adam's view, and not the awareness that something is a command. Okay, A helpful analogy is that of a stop sign. The point of a stop sign is not to convey the message, here is a stop sign. The point of a stop sign is to convey the content of its command, stop. 
Okay, even if for some bizarre reason a person did not realize that this red object before her was the object answering to the description stop sign, as long as she realized that it requires her to stop or that she is required to stop, her ignorance about stop signs would not prevent her from knowing that this is what she's supposed to do when she sees a stop sign. Perhaps a somewhat technical footnote might be useful here, or not, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. This is an instance where, as in elsewhere in contemporary philosophy as well, the medieval distinction between de dicto and de re helps to clarify things. Speaking de re, this woman knows that she should do the things that stop signs convey to her that she should do. She could say, or we could say, as inelegant as it may sound, we could say, and I quote, of the thing that stop signs in fact convey, she knows that she should do it. Okay, that's that's a deray way of speaking. Dedicto, of course, she doesn't know that she should do what stop signs tell her because she doesn't believe that there are stop signs. So we couldn't say, quote, of this thing that she should do, she knows that it is conveyed by a stop sign, end quote. And I think that once more, the supposedly tiresome distinctions made by scholastics rescue us from significant misunderstandings if only modern people would listen. But let's set that aside for now. Consider the possibility that God conveys the sign to people regarding some act. Let's pick murder because it's it's an easy target. And let's say that God conveys this via a proper function of the human conscience. Nobody needs to know what conscience is, they don't need to know how we got one, and they don't need to know that God uses it to ensure that we have some true beliefs in order for them to know, via conscience, that murder is wrong. They don't need all that background information. Unfortunately, this misconception, this this misconstrual of Adam's model of a sign is what drives Morriston's argument from start to finish. For example, and I'll quote from him again, he says, Consider, for example, the obligation to refrain from inflicting unnecessary suffering on one's fellow creatures. Reasonable non-believers have been unable to interpret whatever signs they have been given as divine speech acts forbidding this sort of behavior. But this has not prevented many of them from seeing that it is morally wrong to inflict unnecessary suffering. How can Adams account for this? Well, he's already accounted for this. I hope it's perfectly clear to you how Adams could account for this or how any divine command theorist could account for this. We can simply deny that unbelievers need to understand that the relevant signs were given as divine speech acts. They don't need to know that. All they need to understand is the content of the speech act. They need to hear the stop. They don't need to hear the this is a stop sign. So all they have to understand is the content of the speech act themselves, and hence that there exists an obligation, which they, on on Adams's theory and mine, which is pretty much the same, are quite capable of doing. Having made much of this alleged problem for divine command ethics, Morriston then considers that there might be a response to this objection. Maybe someone out there could think of an answer to all this, he says. Namely, the response that I think was already given in Adam's formulation as I've presented it. In rejecting that response, so he considers briefly what Adam's response might be, and it's basically the one that I've described, but 
Morrison doesn't accept it because, and I quote, the idea of a command that one can receive without being aware of being addressed by anyone is extremely counterintuitive, end quote. Well, you know, the fact that Morriston finds the idea counterintuitive doesn't tell me very much. He adds to this that even if we do construe divine commands very broadly, like Adams does, we end up sacrificing the social component of Adams's theory. As Morriston summarizes, and I quote, For Adams' account to work the way that it was supposed to, Divine commands must be embedded in an analogous network of interpersonal relations. When we disobey God's commands, the most important personal relationship of all is violated, and this gives us a powerful reason to obey. When we disobey God, we incur moral guilt, and we need God's forgiveness. God is, after all, a loving creator from whom we have received all that we have. We owe him our unconditional love, devotion, and obedience, and our moral obligations to one another are ultimately constituted by our obligation to obey his commands. End quote. Now, there's no reason on the face of it why a divine command theorist must think that any of this is undermined by a very broad sense of divine commands, or why, for that matter, any of the above could not be true for unbelievers. All that would follow is that unbelievers are not aware of all of the moral reasons that exist for doing things. Perhaps they are even unaware of the most important reason. But while this seems like a fairly straightforward implication, it raises a problem, says Morriston. He says, The trouble is that the interpersonal relations specified by this picture do not seem to be available to all human beings. In particular, they are not available to non-believers. The non-believer places no value on her relationship with her Creator, since she doesn't know she has one. For the same reason, she doesn't worry about any damage to this relationship, nor does she feel any need for God's forgiveness. So it's hard to see how Adam's social requirement, social requirement version of divine command theory applies to her. End quote. From the perspective of a divine command theorist, the social aspect of morality might apply as follows. When people do wrong, they harm the most important relationship of all, the relationship that they have with their creator. Since unbelievers don't realize that they have a creator who issues the moral commands, then while there's usually little stopping them understanding what these commands require of them, they don't realize how much damage they are doing when they don't obey those commands. In fact, they can't ultimately give a correct account of what makes moral misdeeds as bad as they are. This latter claim is in fact part of the moral argument for theism, which argues that only theism can explain moral duties and prohibitions, and hence God's existence should be accepted by skeptics who are aware of moral duties, but who had never previously been able to account for them, like people who hear a voice with no idea whence it originated. In fact, just briefly, Adams argues that the social features of obligation in general give us reasons for thinking that that if morality is a special case of obligation, then it is best accounted for by invoking God. So he actually, he presupposes that unbelievers will recognize the phenomenon of moral obligations before they understand its theological implications. So it's possible that Morriston is getting the horse before the cart. Let me offer some summary arguments and bring all this together. Morrison's complaint is not against divine command ethics very generally, where God's will either constitutes or causes moral duty. That was Quinn's view 
And Morriston admits, look, I've really got nothing to say about that. That's that's beyond the scope of my critique. After all, that view doesn't even have to offer an account of moral epistemology. Nor is his complaint against a divine command ethics wherein God's will is expressed via some sort of sign where what constitutes that sign may be any one of a fairly broad range of things. For That's like the view of Adam's. That view is well equipped to account for the moral knowledge that unbelievers have. Morriston's complaint, we eventually saw, was against a form of divine command ethics wherein the only way that God makes moral knowledge available is via very overt speech acts of a highly strictly stipulated sort where the recipient understands that God has issued a command so that most of what Adams takes to count as a command wouldn't really count as a command at all. But once we realize that's what the complaint is, it becomes trivial. Who actually advocates this idiosyncratic version of divine command ethics? Not me, not Adams, not Quinn, not anybody that I know of. Maybe his critique serves as a warning to all divine command ethicists that they should not develop their views into one that falls within the scope of his critique, but as far as I'm aware, nobody does. So, as an effort to breathe new life into the old epistemological objection, it's not successful. I I don't see that it has any more logical value than the rather crude versions that I looked at earlier. The refutations of the epistemological objection that have been used before continue to apply now. That moral facts exist because of, or are identical with, certain facts about God's will is no barrier to the possibility of non-theists having moral knowledge. I, As I consider a divine command theory with a very broad notion of what co- constitutes a command, like Adams' view, to be the most plausible, this is really all, all I need to say. I've said as much as I need to on behalf of a divine command theory, and so the objection really comes up against a straw man, that's that, the objection dies. But before I finish up, let's imagine that a, ver- a new variety of divine command ethics were to emerge, and this new variety that no one's held before did involve this very strong notion of what it is for something to be a command. Let's pretend that this new variety made the claim that what makes an action wrong is that God forbids it, and what makes an action morally required is that God commands it, and those commands are things expressed verbally by God, out loud, or mediated verbally in an overt manner via some representative, perhaps the church or the authors of Scripture. Suppose that a proponent of this view, a hypothetical emerging philosopher who invented this new take on divine command ethics, in other words, someone who actually holds the view that Morriston criticizes, responded to Morriston as follows. And I quote, I realize that those who claim there is no God do not realize that God has issued these commands either directly or via an intermediary. But the fact is that they really should realize that God exists and has issued these commands. Claiming that they have done their epistemic duty is verbally easy but I will argue that it is not true. There are good arguments for the existence of God, and there are good reasons for accepting the Christian faith. The evidence is so good, in fact, that to reject it is to merely engage in tenacity in the teeth of the facts. End quote. Now, as I am pretty sure I've made quite clear, 
This is not Adams's view. It wasn't Quinn's view when it came to divine command ethics. I'm not aware of anyone who has put forward a divine command theory of ethics, which entails all of this. So nothing of interest follows if this response were to fail. Having said that, I don't think it can be simply brushed aside any more than the claim that there are good reasons to be a theist or a Christian can be brushed aside. If someone in Morriston's position does simply brush it aside, then anyone who did hold this new theory will have to be excused for not finding Morriston's argument very interesting. So there you have it. That's what San Francisco misses out on. It's still probably in its earlyish forms and may yet undergo further development. But that was it. If you're new to this podcast and you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe to it for free through the iTunes store, which is probably the easiest way to browse through all the previous episodes. If you are subscribed via the iTunes store, but you haven't seen the blog, remember there is a blog. Definitely check that out over at www.beretta-online.com. And if there are any issues that you'd like to see covered either through the podcast or at the blog, but which I haven't done so yet, go to the blog, use the contact page to drop me a line. I can't promise anything, but you never know. I'd love to hear from you. And as always, let people know about the podcast and the blog. I'd like to reach as many people as possible. There are a couple more episodes in the pipeline already, so I'll get those out to you when I can. In the meantime, stay safe out there. This is your host, Glenn Peoples, signing off yet another episode of... Shut up to my little friend!